Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. It is my pleasure to welcome everybody here to the fourth program in our Chinatown Hall series with today's focus on economics and trade. My name is Steve Orleans, and I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you all for taking the time to join us. I'm delighted to introduce our panelists. They all have very long bios, but I'll just use one sentence for each. Amy Selico is a principal at the Albright Stonebridge Group and leads the firm's DC-based China practice. She formerly served as senior director for China Affairs at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, Dr. Huang Yiping is the Jingguang Chair Professor of Economics Deputy Dean at the National School of Development and Director of the Institute of Digital Finance, all at Peking University. And Andy Rothman is an investment strategist at Matthews Asia, where he researches China's ongoing economic and political developments. He spent over 20 years working on and living in China. So we've got a very distinguished panel. Let me kick it off with a question to Amy. Um, how would you describe the current status of U.S.-China relations? What's the status of the phase one trade deal uh, that we've negotiated under President Trump? Has China complied? And what do you predict will happen with trade talks when Biden takes office? Thank you, Steve, um, and to the National Committee for inviting me uh, to join you, Professor Huang and Andy, for this discussion. The U.S.-China trade relationship, of course, is incredibly important to all of us. We're talking, of course, about over $600 billion worth of goods and services in two-way trade last year. Despite the ongoing trade war, China is still our third largest export market, and the United States remains China's largest export market. But despite the large numbers, and the importance of this relationship to the health of our respective economies, the state of U.S.-China relations uh, in trade, much like the state of the overall relationship, is worse than it was uh, prior to the start of the trade war. Uh, that really is characterizing trade ties right now. Over the past two years, tariffs, an uncertain business environment and policies enacted in Washington and in Beijing meant to decouple uh, some of our economic interdependence. All of this together has led to a steep decline in our trade ties, particularly U.S. exports to China. President Trump's phase one trade agreement with China that you just referenced, signed in January, could have helped to remedy uh, this uh, trade, uh, shrinking trade relationship, and could have led to a spike in U.S. exports to China this year. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, China, having impressively uh, weathered the setbacks uh, to its economy due to the COVID outbreak in Q1, has been ramping up purchases of goods uh, to the United from the United States since the summer. 
and is currently about on track to fulfill a little over one-third of its commitment to purchase approximately $160 billion in total U.S. goods by the end of this year. The U.S. government has not blamed China for not meeting its purchase commitments, and neither am I. The deal itself, promising more than $200 billion in increased purchases of U.S. goods over two years, over 2017 base numbers, was unrealistic to start with. Uh, the deal was never that impressive, nor was it comprehensive. It kept most of the tariffs in place. It didn't level the playing field for American companies in the China market. And of course, it left most of the tough structural issues on China's use of subsidies, the oversized role of state-owned enterprises in its economy, and cybersecurity policy issues for future negotiations. So I'm saying that despite the incredibly important role of trade to help buoy U.S.-China relations, a role that U.S. and China's business communities have strived to play for years, trade remains another area of serious contention in U.S.-China relations today, and that predates the Trump administration. President Trump tried to remedy widespread concerns over China's unfair trade practices through the use of tariffs, uh, trying to use that blunt instrument to force the Chinese government to uh, change some of its policies and level the playing field for foreign companies. That hasn't worked. It, in fact, has likely hurt the American economy more than China's, although both sides have felt real pain. And so this is what the Biden administration is inheriting. They're inheriting tariffs and other restrictions on trade that the Trump administration has put in place and new restrictions that the administration is promising to continue putting in place over the next two months. Um, uh, despite the harm to trade flows, the Biden administration is not going to be in a position uh, to unilaterally lift uh, the tariffs uh, right at the outset for fear of appearing weak on China. But the China market remains incredibly attractive for American companies and for our exporters. And so re-engaging on trade issues needs to be a top priority of the, of the Biden administration as it seeks to help the U.S. economy revive after uh, the COVID-induced recession that we're now facing. So I predict that a Biden administration is going to want to re-engage with China on the full range of challenges to our trade relationship. It takes two to tango, and so it's going to be very important for the Biden administration to come forward to want to engage the Chinese government on these trade issues that really are plaguing um, the relationship, but so too will be it will be important for the Chinese government to, to want to engage on the full range of structural issues that are of concern. Terrific, terrific. I've got a dozen questions to ask after that, but I'll go to our other speakers first. Um, Yiping, I always rely on you for, for understanding what's going on in the macroeconomic environment in China. So it, you're, even though it's a rainy morning in Beijing, the economies, it, life is kind of back to normal and we're seeing a V-shaped recovery. Are we? What's the target now for 2000, both for the rest of 2020 and 2021? Um, where do you see the Chinese economy? 
Well, as as you know, uh, Steve, the economy um, start to recover quite quickly from the second quarter and the third quarter. In the third quarter, GDP growth was 4.9% a year on year. My best guess is at the moment, the economic growth is probably already back to the trend range uh, before COVID-19, which probably is between 5 to 6%. Um, so that's pretty impressive, um, given um, the shock. But the recovery has not been very balanced. Um, for instance, exports being very strong, Investment also played a significant role, but within investment, we saw strong sectors um, in the, uh, property investment, infrastructure investment, and so on. Manufacturing investment remains weak. In relative terms, the consumption is kind of soft. We have a dichotomy story within the consumption story. On the one hand, the rich households spending lots of money buying cars, properties, and luxury goods, and so on. But uh, um, the low-income households are not spending um, aggressively. But that's understandable because of the, um, the, the COVID-19, their income was significantly affected. Um, so I think uh, looking forward, uh, going forward, uh, uh, my expectation is that growth probably can continue at around 5 or 6% for quite a while, although next year, the number, just the year-on-year -year number would be higher because of the base effect, but I think the trend will remain. There are a couple of issues we need to look at. Number one, can we um, expect the exports and the fixed and the infrastructure spending and the property investment to continue? There are certainly some risk um, about it. The second question really is, uh, when will we see our consumer spending uh, rebound quite more dramatically. This is something now the government is hoping that it will become a main driver of economic growth uh, going forward. But there are some uncertainties around it because at the moment, the low income households are not spending a lot of money because their income growth has been slow. Going forward, over the long term, I'm personally quite upbeat about the consumer spending um, over the uh, medium term. But the problems, I think we have a number of issues. Number one is income distribution, which means the low-income household wants to spend lots of money, but they don't have enough income. Number two, the social welfare system is still not well-developed. And that is partly why um, the low-income household spending was significantly affected during COVID-19, because there was no effective means of supporting them um, during a shock like that. And the number three, I think, a question of urbanization. At the moment, a per, per capita cons consumer spending in the urban area still doubles that of the rural resident, which really means if we can't push ahead aggressively the urbanization uh, program, uh, consumer spending will remain um, soft um, in, in the coming uh, years. So these are the issues I think we need to um, keep in mind. But uh, my overall assessment is that we probably uh, will see growth to continue at around 5 to 6%. Now, you mentioned about the government target. In fact, this year, the government didn't set an explicit target, which I thought was a great idea because at a time when they had the National People's Congress meeting, 
I think in May or in June, I forgot. But given the uncertainties around the, surrounding the economy, it was unwise to set a specific target. At the moment, um, we are all discussing about the so-called 14th five-year plan, uh, which basically set out the, the economic uh, um, indicators for the next five years. We haven't seen a specific numbers yet, so I don't know exactly um, where we're going to, to see the number, uh, or even, I don't, even don't know whether the government is going to set a number for next year, partly because the number will be distorted by the base effect and the uncertainties about the COVID-19. We don't know if it will be gone by the first quarter of next year or will stay with us for another three years. So um, I think it is very difficult now, but uh, my, my, my sense is number one, um, my expectation is that growth can continue at around a five or six percent um, trend range without significant shocks or surprises. The second thing I think is useful to keep in mind is the government is thinking of doubling income within the next uh, 15 years, which is by 2013, the income will double what we have today which probably means you need a growth between um, a, a, a bit close to 5%, uh, between 4 to 5%. So that's the um, rough range we are, we, are, we, are, we are thinking about at the moment. When you talk about a 5 to 6% growth rate in China, what is your assumption on world growth rate and how much GDP growth is dependent, global GDP growth is dependent on China's growth? Uh, well, the the, the Chinese contribution to global growth last a few years, um, I, I think it was way above 30%. So that probably will continue. And this year, I'm sure it will be much, much uh, bigger. When I said 5 to 6%, I'm assuming the global economy goes back to a normal range of 3 to 4% um, average growth. Now, uh, I'm not. I'm saying this is trend growth, Steve. So I'm not necessarily saying what is what is going to happen this year or next year. This year, one specific factor that was quite unique was when the global economy was shrinking. But we are seeing the Chinese export expanding quite dramatically. And in fact, we just saw the the the, the October number export growth was above 11 percent a year on year. That was kind of surprising when the world economy was shrinking. But part of the reason was because China put the pandemic under control more quickly and therefore you have the capacity to produce. In a way, this was very unusual. When everybody else was not able to produce and we still are operating. So I don't know if this export performance is sustainable. I don't think it is. Which perfect segue into into to Andy. Um, what's the frame? What would the framework of uh, kind of U.S.-China economic relations going to look like under a President Biden? How are we going to deal with the difficult challenges on issues such as decoupling supply chains and and other aspects of the economic relationship? And then the last part of that question is: How do you think that will affect? China's economic growth, or basically it's so big now it doesn't matter? Well, I think a good place to start is to reiterate one of the points that Yi Ping just made, which is that 
over the last decade on average every year, China has accounted for more than a third of global economic growth. Last year, it was closer to 40%. That's a larger share of global growth every year than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. So to me, that says that the whole concept of decoupling is just fantasy and Ill, misguided. And I don't think decoupling is going to be something we're going to hear about from the Biden administration. That doesn't mean they won't be looking at securing supply chains and things like that. So let me talk about how I think the US-China relationship is going to evolve under the Biden administration. I think it's going to come under three phases. The first will be the easy and immediate phase. And it's easy because it's going to come simply from what Biden and his team are not going to say about China. So they're not, I believe, going to call China an enemy of the United States. They're not, I believe, going to refer to China as an existential threat to the American way of life and American democracy. I do not expect to hear the Biden administration talking about regime change in China. And those are all things that the current administration has been talking about, which has made it really hard for the Chinese government to want to engage in serious negotiations with the United States. This, I think, will warm up the atmosphere considerably right at the beginning. The second phase will be harder, and I think it will be dominated by an effort by President Biden to abandon the unilateralism of the previous administration and focus on a multilateral approach to most global issues, including China. So I don't think we're going to see the Biden team define in any detail what they want to do with China until after they've had a chance to sit down with American allies and partners, including in Asia, and figure out how to come up with a coordinated approach. What areas can the US work collaboratively on with China? Things like global uh, climate change, which is going to be a, a, an emphasis for the Biden team. Uh, healthcare, the pandemic's a great example of that. Nuclear nonproliferation. And what areas can the US and other democracies agree on where they need to apply pressure on China to think about changing its behavior, provide incentives for better behavior, such as civil rights. And then the third phase is going to be the even harder one. That's going to require some pretty important decisions by both governments. I think the key one for me, getting back to what Amy was talking about, is on trade, uh, because I agree with her. I think getting the US government back into a leadership role in global trade, and especially in Asian trade, given what we just saw a few days ago with the signing of this regional trade pact in Asia, which includes all of our Asian partners, like South Korea and Japan and Australia and Thailand and Indonesia and China, and we were absent from that. So I think one of the difficult things, as Amy was alluding to, is going to be with the political discussion in the United States about whether we do trade deals or not. So I was really heartened by something that Vice President Biden wrote just a few months ago, where he said, the wrong thing to do is to put our heads in the sand and say no more trade deals. Countries will trade with or without the United States. The question is, who writes the rules that govern trade? The US, not China, should be leading that effort, Biden said. So I'm hoping that is going to come to play. And that's going to then bring up the question, what do we do about the tariffs that Amy mentioned? The tariffs need to go. They've been counterproductive. They haven't induced change in China. But there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say to Biden, well, what are you going to get from the Chinese from that? And then the Chinese are going to say, why do we owe you anything from this when you're really not putting any pressure on us? And then finally, the other tough decision in the third phase comes on the Chinese part. If 
President Biden gives Xi Jinping the opportunity to work collaboratively and constructively with the U.S. and its partners, I think he's going to have to make some decisions. Does he want to follow the path set by his predecessors who ran the party during the period of time that was characterized by engagement between the United States and China? And that resulted in the Chinese government making a lot of changes at home and abroad in the way it behaved. And that turned out to be great for China. It made Chinese people wealthier and healthier. It gave them more personal freedom. It improved China's position in the world. And it also strengthened the rule of the Communist Party. So there's lots of incentives for Xi to continue on that path that was set by his predecessors. But that's kind of one of the big unknowns for me is how does he see China's role evolving in the world over the next few decades? But wouldn't you think, given what both Andy and Amy have said, that these tariffs have hurt the American people and done nothing really to help us, that the Biden administration would immediately begin discussions and the Chinese imposed reciprocal tariffs on American goods. Isn't it kind of like low hanging fruit to just go and reduce the tariffs to let's say um, January 2017 levels? Well, you know, it's, it's about US domestic politics and, and that intersection with trade. So maybe I'll pass that on to Amy, who knows that side of it better than I do. If Sorry to drop that on you, but do you want to answer that? Well, I do think, um, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm in violent agreement with you, Andy. It's going to be very challenging because of domestic politics within the United States. But you already gave part of my answer, too, which is, it wouldn't just be the United States offering to take tariffs off. China would have to also agree to take its tariffs off. Because again, when we talk about the decrease in US exports to China that's been happening as a result of the trade war, it's because of China's retaliation against American exporters. And the, the cost of exporting to China is so much higher now because of those retaliatory tariffs. And so again, I think that President-elect Biden, of course, wants to focus first and foremost on COVID and, and along with that on helping the U.S. economy recover from this COVID-induced recession. And so trade is a natural point to be complementary to that effort. So, Steve, I think your instinct is right. It should be low-hanging fruit, but it cannot be just the United States offering this. And that's why we really do need to see both uh, China and the United States coming together and saying, let's take an early action to, 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 to reset one component of the relationship. Right. We know we're going to face so many challenges in the relationship going forward, but can we together take an action that will help our both of our economies? Yiping, that's not your area, I know, but but wouldn't you expect that if the United States ended the tariffs uh, that Trump had imposed, that China would reciprocate by ending the retaliatory tariffs that they had imposed? I have no doubt at all. Um, I think China didn't start by introducing these tariffs. So if the U.S. decides to uh, reduce it or eliminate it, 
I'm 100% sure that China will be happy to do the same. Um, but, but the main issue, I think, is this. Um, I do think China needs to adopt more reform, um, especially in areas like reducing subsidies to the state sector, opening um, the domestic market, um, and so on. These are all the things that we think the Chinese government should do. And the government has a plan um, to, to some extent, including protection of intellectual property rights. I just think the way President Trump is doing, especially like a mandatory requiring you to purchase the six, uh, fixed amount of products from the US is not the right, the right way of doing it. Now, um, as we all know, China signed the agreement, but we all knew that it would be very difficult to fulfill. So my expectation and my hope is that uh, um, the Biden administration, as I expect, he's a globalist. So hopefully he would go back to the rule-based uh, multilateralism, working not just bilaterally, but also on the, um, the global systems like WTO. It will be much, much easier, effective in uh, um, forcing China to push ahead with the reforms I just mentioned. And these are the reforms I think China want to do, and we think the government should accelerate um, in these areas. So what I'm hearing from all of you is that we should move towards a discussion which doesn't have quantitative goals, but just talks about structural reform, state subsidies, non-tariff barriers, uh, investment caps, and those kinds of things. Is that a consensus on this panel? Well, I think, Steve, quantitative goals are what we call manage the trade. It's not the free trade. Right. Um, so the question is, where are we going? Are we going from like a restricted trade to manage the trade? Or are we really going forward toward the free trade regime? Yeah, um, which, which actually leads me very well to the first question from our audience. This is China Town Hall. So we want to hear from the audience, which is uh, William Kayser who asks, you know, we've been talking about RCIP. Uh, maybe Yiping, you can kind of describe what, very simply, what RCIP is, what China's signing of it this past Sunday means, and then Amy and Andy comment on what it means for the United States and potentially what it means for uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And is, is this a, a light that's creating some rebirth? Well, I'm not an expert on trade issues, but my understanding of the, um, the RCEP is essentially a free trade arrangement for um, a group of the Asian economies. I think it's a very significant uh, um, uh, progress, really moving beyond what we had under the WTO arrangement. Um, in some specific areas, I think they could be quite significant for China to further integrate into the rest of um, the region, especially with some of the important neighboring economies like Japan, Korea, um, and, uh, and, and, and Southeast Asia. So I think this is a very critical step for China to further to liberalize and integrate into the rest of um, the region, but it is only the first step. Amy and Andy, what's it mean for the US? Or Amy, that's kind of in your... Yeah, I'll say, I mean, I agree with Yiping. It is, um, it is terrific to see that China is part of this 15-country uh, 
um, free trade agreement, and hopefully it will expand further from there. Um, and I think the optics of the U.S. government not being part of now two uh, Asian free trade agreements, plurilateral agreements, is very bad. And um, for the United States, which is a self-proclaimed leader and, um, and participant in the Pacific economies. And so uh, I do think there's more pressure on the U.S. government to rethink uh, when and how it might restart the process of trying to join CPTPP. So obviously the politics of that are very challenging, but um, the standards of that uh, agreement are higher than RCEPs. And so it is going to require some real negotiations for lawmakers and American citizens to be on board with the United States joining that. I'll just say again, I do think that uh, had RCEP not been finalized, this probably wouldn't be an early priority of a Biden administration to think about that again, because there are so many other priorities uh, for Biden to tackle. But because RCEP is now signed and the United States wants to reassert its leadership, not just as a security leader, but as an economic leader, I think um, they're going to have to think about CPTPP much sooner than originally planned. Do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, just two quick points. Um, I think the signing of that agreement coming at this point in time will hopefully be a wake-up call to politicians in Washington who say, on the one hand, they want America to be the preeminent world power and America to lead the way. And on the other hand, have been saying they're not interested in international or regional trade deals. You can't have it both ways. The second point is, I think if we look back, every time China has joined a global institution or a regional institution, it's been to both the benefit of China and everybody else. China certainly hasn't played by all the rules. Not many countries do. But you know, on WTO, when people say, well, they didn't really do everything, well, they did enough that prior to the tariff war, US exports to China rose by about 500% since China joined the WTO versus 100% increase to the rest of the world. Yeah, there are market entry barriers, but GM is now selling more cars in China than they are in the United States. So I think bringing China into global institutions is good for everybody, and we need to continue to move that process forward. Mm -hmm. Yiping, let's go. We have a question from your friend, Ernie Thrasher, uh, who wants to go back to kind of China's economic growth. Are you, is the Chinese government gonna continue to increase or sustain growth in total social financing and credit to support economic growth? Well, this is a one issue I think we need to watch out. The government certainly would be uh, willing to uh, um, support the economy if they have to expand further credit. The question there, I guess Ernie is um, hinting to, if I'm correct, is that uh, um, Potentially, we already have a relatively high leverage ratio. Um, so there is a question if we can continue to leverage up after this period. That's something I think we do need to focus on. The second issue related to this is uh, during this pandemic, the government did whatever it takes to support economic sector. But really what happened was the PBOC maintained a relatively normal monetary policy 
the fiscal policy became more aggressive, but their spending was more on like infrastructure, public health, tax um, exemption, and so on. They had the limited means of supporting the SMEs directly. What really supported the SMEs were the financial sector, the banking sector. I mean, credit growth was tremendous. Um, that was understandable because the banks had uh, ways of supporting the SMEs. But one of the potential concerns, my concerns, is that next year, if we might see um, increases in the, um, the non-performing loan ratios of the banking sector, because after a while, um, some of these uh, um, extended credits might not be um, with a very good quality. And that would potentially have a problem, number one, if the banking assets, the quality of banking assets decline, um, that would have a significant impact on the rest of the economy. Now, I'm concerned more about the small, medium banks, not the large banks. The second question is if the quality, asset quality decline, there is a question if we can really see um, the banks continue to inject enough liquidity to support the real economy. So my short answer to um, Ernie um, is that uh, number one, I'm sure the government will be um, determined to provide more credit to support the growth if they have to, especially in the near term. But my second point is this pattern of growth is not sustainable, particularly given the potential asset quality problem we already perceive in the banking sector. I do think uh, restructuring and the reform of the financial sector becomes vital now. Um. Andy, we talk, you know, you talk briefly about decoupling. Here is a question from Akshay Smith at Stanford. Uh, says, and it's right up your alley because it relates to holding shares in Chinese companies. The Trump administration the other day unveiled an order that would forgive, forbid U.S. investors from buying or selling shares in 31 Chinese companies. Some of these companies are included in major indexes such as MSCI China. How will investors react to this and what will be its impact? Ah, uh, yes, that's consumed most of my days for the last several days. Uh, but actually, if you don't, if you bear with me, before I answer that question, I want to follow up on something that Yiping uh, talked about. I, I think it's really important for us here in the United States to draw some lessons from what China's been doing to generate this V-shaped economic recovery that you've both been talking about. Um, it's not really been because of a, an enormous monetary or fiscal policy stimulus. In fact, the stimulus has been relatively small compared to what we've done in the United States and what most countries in Europe have done. At, the, the key has been, in my view, that after making some serious mistakes in December and January with COVID, since that time, China's done a great job. Um, there hasn't been a COVID death in China since mid-April. We're running at about 1,000 deaths a day in the United States on average. There's only about 400 COVID patients in a hospital in China now, down from 58,000 in the mid-February peak. We're doing about 70,000 patients in a hospital. So when we think about getting our economy going again, I think it's important to look at what China's done, and it's basically getting COVID under control, letting people's lives get back to normal. Um, on the investment side, yes, the, the White House put out late last week an executive order which bans Americans next year from investing in 31 com companies, which
which have been defined by the Defense Department as communist Chinese military companies. And that includes China Mobile and China Telecom, as you mentioned, which are reasonably widely held. To me, that is way too broad to be useful definition of national security concerns, but we're gonna have to live with it. Uh, right now, we're still, we're spending way too much time talking to lawyers trying to figure out what this means because the executive order is not written in very clear language. Hopefully we'll get more guidance. Um, I don't, uh, so I, I think everybody's just told, trying to figure out what it means. But two things to keep in mind. Americans are not big investors in these companies or in China in general. Our estimate is that Americans only account for six or 7% of the market capitalization in China. So if we get locked out, I don't think this is putting any pressure on Chinese companies or the Chinese government. I don't think it's gonna have a big impact, uh, the executive order on, sh on valuations of these companies because if Americans have to sell, I think there'll be buyers in, in the rest of the world. But it is gonna cause a lot of disruption for anybody who's investing in Chinese equities or in indexes or ETFs that include that because everybody's struggling to figure out how to deal with this. And then of course, we're gonna get the question of the rules don't take effect until next year. What is the Biden administration gonna do with it? Yep. Um, Amy, another of the kind of what's been going on in terms of US-China investment flows has been the, the, the role of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, chaired, I think, by the Treasury. Um, is, do you expect the uh, controls on Chinese investments to stay as tough as they are today, to be rationalized? What's your expectation going forward? Well, for a few years now, we've seen um, this bleeding of uh, national security concerns and issues into economic policymaking. And so um, the committee, the interagency committee you just mentioned, Steve, of course, reviews inbound investment into the United States to see whether there are national security concerns over any foreign, uh, it's not country specific, any uh, foreign companies' investments in the United States, but indeed, um, you know, strengthened rules governing this committee's work are looking more closely at Chinese inbound investments. And I think that um, that is a trend that will be very difficult to reverse, given that Congress plays a very strong role in strengthening many of our rules that cover these issues. It's almost easier talking about trade policy because, um, of course, the administration has uh, a freer hand in, in making trade rules. There are, of course, some congressional considerations like approving trade deals. But um, on issues like export controls and investment reviews that involve national security concerns, Congress has been driving a lot of the strengthening of those rules. And so that limits the ability of a Biden administration to just change course on its own. And never mind the fact that, again, what I think all of us are talking about here tonight is the mood uh, in Washington, D.C., is, is one that is saying, uh, and, and 
President-elect Biden has said this himself, uh, being tough on China is something that he will continue. But uh, being tough isn't a strategy, it's a posture. And so what we're all waiting to see is how does this, uh, the, the advisors to President-elect Biden, how do they think about these issues, these issues of the ways in which we're looking at national security concerns, that intersect with investment and trade policies. And, you know, again, the American companies that want to be investing in China, the Chinese companies that want to be investing in the United States for the benefit of uh, our economic relationship and our domestic economies, they are, are going to continue, I'm sure, to lobby the U.S. government to be considered in how we make these decisions and not to just allow domestic politics to railroad um, very important decisions that affect uh, our livelihoods and, and our national security. In the opening night of Chinatown Hall, I, I had a, an hour discussion with Ray Dalio, and he talked about something that Andy would care a lot about, which is the allocation of um, global portfolios to China, which kind of relates to the question I, I just asked you, you know, the United States doesn't really have a, a material uh, kind of allocation to Chinese stocks. So two questions is, is, is that going to change? And second, um, how do you think, Andy, about, about the RMB ultimately becoming a central bank reserve currency? Is that something that's just so far out, we're not going to live to see it? And then I'll go to Yiping and ask for his views on that. Okay, thanks, Steve. Uh, I think the attention that Americans are paying on investing in China has already been changing. Um, it's been slow, and but I think a lot of that has been due to the uh, political rhetoric coming out of Washington about China, casting China as the enemy has left a lot of Americans nervous about the political risks of investing in China. But at the same time, a couple of other things are happening. One is Chinese economy has been very strong recently. We talked before about how it's the major driver of global growth. It is, in my view, the world's best consumer story. Chinese retail spending in dollar terms is almost as big as in the United States, and it's growing twice as fast. China's economy is reorienting away from manufacturing and trade and exports to a domestic demand, consumer and services-driven economy like ours. And that's providing more opportunities for American investors who are worried about their retirement. So we are seeing that as well as index inclusion. MSCI and the other NICS providers have been increasing their exposure and that's driving a lot of the flows. So I think that all of those together, plus performance. Uh, in Matthews Asia, where I work, we have, we have three China-focused funds that this year have year-to-date returns up between 18 and more than 60%. Um, now, that's not all of them, and that's not a predictor of the future, of course, uh, <laughs> but it is leading people to pay more attention to it. Uh, on the currency, uh, I'd, be, I'd be really interested to hear what Yiping has to say, but my view is that a lot of foreigners are misinterpreting what a lot of Chinese officials and scholars are saying when they talk about internationalization of the renminbi, I think in very few cases, if any, do they mean China soon having a currency which is considered a reserve currency. Because without the rule of law, 
without full markets involved in setting uh, valuations and, and exchange rates, and with capital controls remaining in place, which is likely to be the case for a long time, the renminbi is not going to be a reserve currency that competes with the dollar or the euro or the yen. But I don't think that's the objective in China. I think it's more focused on internationalization, which I believe from the Chinese context means China would like more of its trade denominated and paid for in renminbi. And that's been happening. Yep. Yiping? You need to unmute or we need to unmute you. There you go. Well, um, I, I, I largely agree um, with Andy, um, what he just said. Um, my, my, my own slight difference is um, that I think RMB is already one of the reserve currencies. It's already a part of IMF's special drawing right basket. So it's one of the, um, the, the global uh, reserve currencies. RMB already accounts for something like 2% of the global central bank's um, reserves. So in a way, it, is, it's, it's still, it already is, but it's just a very small part. But I think Andy is right. Um, I think there is a long way before um, RMB can really be a competitor with other some major uh, reserve currencies. And I think China started internationalizing the currency from 2009, made a significant progress, especially in the payment, the settlement, and so on. <clears throat> but we had a, a major setback in 2015 uh, when we liberalized the set, uh, reform to the central parity of the exchange rate, which triggered the expectation of depreciation. And that, that's the time when the central bank had to reintroduce or reinforce some of the cross-border capital flow management. At the moment now, um, PBOC, the central bank, is thinking about restarting um, uh, uh, the internationalization uh, policy. So I expect that we'll see some further uh, movement in the coming uh, months or even in the coming years. But there are a number of things we still need to do before RMB can really become a major reserve currency. Number one, I do think we need to make the currency convertible um, and the exchange rate more flexible. Number two, um, you already talked about the, um, the reform and the improvement of the domestic capital markets because you need to have RMB-dominated assets for non-residents to hold if your currency wants to become international. There's still a long way to go. And finally, um, I think Andy is right. We also need to improve um, the legal system, meaning if foreigners are holding your currency, they need to be very confident about the security and the safety of the assets. So I think in many of these areas, we need, we need to reform the system and that will take some time. So replacing the US dollar certainly is not something um, PBOC officials in mind at the moment. How should Americans understand the central bank digital currency that is now being rolled out in experimental areas in China? Well, the main point, uh, um, Steve, is uh, the, the central bank digital currency going to be issued by PBOC is called the digital currency electronic payment. It's mainly a payment service. Uh, so it replaces only um, the currency in circulation, not anything else. In the near term, what we really should think about it is the central bank digital currency 
could be more efficient for the individuals um, and some of the shops to use because they're safer, because they're quicker, because um, they, they're cheaper. Um, and so that is the uh, most immediate step in for now. In the future, there might be some further steps, but uh, um, we're not uh, there yet. Question from Jack Zhang at uh, University of Kansas, and it sounds like this is best for Amy. The distinction between economic and security issues has been blurred by the U.S.-China trade war. Is the U.S. national interest better served by framing trade and investment with China as security rather than economic issues? How would you advise the Biden administration, administration to preserve economic linkages while addressing security concerns with China? Oh, what a great question. Um, I, I would advise the Biden administration to look at the ramifications of some of the policies that have been enacted over the past few years and whether they have enhanced uh, American security or in some, in some instances undermined our competitiveness, unfortunately. So uh, let's look at you know, export controls that have been increased, so restricting American companies' ability to uh, sell products to China for national security reasons. In some cases, um, I don't think that those restrictions really um, make the United States safer. Uh, instead, they just um, shut off the ability of the United States from selling products to China that China can gain from uh, Korea or South Korea or Japan or other countries. And so the challenge for the Biden administration is not to ignore very real uh, national security considerations in some of our technology trade, what I'm talking about, but it is to consider um, where do we apply restrictions and where do we look uh, in other ways to enhance uh, national security and continue to focus on the competitiveness of the United States? Because that's how we're going to continue to maintain security in the face of um, you know, a rising threat from all over the world, from the prospect of many other countries, including China. Joe Batet at MIT is a perfect follow-up to that, which is how do you handle dual technologies while maintaining a reasonable level of economic coupling? Well, let me say, uh, I do think one thing that um, a Biden administration is already, I, I think, talking about doing is not acting unilaterally on dual use. And Andy will remember this uh, from his days in the U.S. government, too. You know, we were talking about multilateral agreements that, that really defined what was a dual use technology that required a license in order to sell. And um, I would suggest that a Biden administration should, rather than acting unilaterally to set those rules, uh, work with other countries. And so that there can be a discussion among like-minded partners, as well as bringing in other countries, too, to this idea of signing up to uh, a multilateral agreement that will you know, limit, um, you know, technology going for uh, military ends that could really um, impact national security of a number of countries. This is, this shouldn't be just uh, for the United States to decide on dual use. 
Andy, do you want to add anything? Uh, I can. I think Amy said it really well. Oh, I would just okay. say from 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 my experience uh, working in the latter years of the Reagan administration on export controls on telecommunications to then the Soviet Union and to China, as Amy said, the multilateral approach is the most important part. We need to be able to persuade our closest allies and partners that these rules make sense so they support us. And maybe we don't go back and recreate COCOM, but at a minimum, if we're willing to share our most sensitive signals intelligence with the other four countries and the five eyes, we should be working with them to reach agreement on a science-based reasons to restrict exports of certain technologies or, or gear. The other thing I would add is I think that in general, we need to take a more science and regulation and standards-based approach. Not saying, oh, this company is from China, therefore we're gonna restrict what they do here. Instead, let's come up with guidelines that all companies on the internet from all countries have to abide by to protect our privacy, to mitigate the risks of spying because those risks are real. I mean, my personnel file from the State Department, my State Department days, I'm long gone from there, um, was hacked by the, apparently by the Chinese government when they got into the Office of Personnel Management Records. So this is going on, but let's take a rational approach to this and not just say, uh, it's this company like TikTok or WeChat, but provide protection for all of us from all bad actors. Which is, goes perfectly to the next question from Noah Gitta, who asks, what does the future of Chinese technology firms operating in the United States look like? Is the treatment of Huawei and TikTok going to be the norm? And then I would add to that, what about, to, for Yiping, what about US technology companies in China? So Amy and Andy first, and then Yiping. Uh, it is uh, it is a challenging issue because I think um, rhetorically some who want to expand restrictions on technology companies operating in China talk about reciprocity because the the, the China market is closed to so many uh, forms of American technology services. Um, that's a reason to to close our markets. It's not a good reason. And, and I think we really need to move beyond that and talk again about the legitimate concerns. Uh, and I think that uh, a Biden administration is going to do that. They're going to look at these issues rationally and think and talk with our partners about them as well. It doesn't mean that there won't be some restrictions on technology flows. There certainly will be. And when I talk about decoupling, uh, and I don't like it either, but I think it is, it is true that both Beijing and Washington DC are trying to reduce um, the vulnerability of our economies to one another um, through technology flows. And so unfortunately that will continue, but I do think we have to have a rational conversation with other countries about where those uh, technology restrictions should exist. And I think um, there wouldn't be uh, much appetite for um, shutting down a platform like TikTok um, if, we, if we were talking about many multilateral conversations on the national security implications of that platform just happening to be owned by a Chinese company. So I hope that kind of conversation can be had uh, in the in a Biden administration together with other partners. Andy, anything? 
Uh, no, I, I agree with what Amy has just said, and I already you, you uh, made some comments. You think the ban will be rescinded by the, uh, by the Biden administration? I'm, I'm sorry, the, Steve, which ban? The, the TikTok WeChat. Uh, well, neither one of those has come into force yet. Right. Uh, because they, courts they still have, have outstanding executive orders. Right. And the courts have so far been blocking it. And I think the legal process, and it appears that the current administration has kind of given up on that. Uh, and I doubt you will see the Biden administration pursuing it. Um, but I'll, I'll yield the rest of my time to uh, Yiping. Go ahead. Well, Steve, um, I think number one, the Chinese market should be more open, um, which I agree. I think in many areas we should liberalize, um, let foreign companies to play greater roles. That's the first point. The second point I think everybody would agree, I hope, is that uh, the American high-tech companies all benefited from the Chinese market um, and one way or the other. In fact, I think what uh, the Trump uh, administration is doing, um, the sanctions um, they're going to impose, in fact, is going to reduce um, that uh, benefit for the American high-tech companies. And the number three, I do agree with both Andy and Amy that uh, multilateralism is probably the best way of dealing with the problem. I do think China wants to integrate deeper into um, the global system, want to be a part of um, the, the, the international market. So I think multilateralism would make it much, much easier for the Chinese government to, face, to take further actions of liberalization. Certainly the speech given by the president at the Shanghai International Import Expo suggested that we're going to see further openings and further reforms. It was one of the strongest speeches, but the, the American public and the, the American media and the American Congress want to spe see specific actions, that the general uh, statement. Just give you an example quickly. Um, despite the problems we saw last two years with the relations with the US, the Chinese opening of the financial service sector has been continuing granting more licenses, um, eliminating the, um, the, the, the holding share limit, and so on. So I do see we have some um, evidences. Yeah, certainly the financial services sector has been uh, a bright shining reform city on a hill. It really has, has made progress. We're, we're running out of time, and I'm, with, with our hundreds of, of viewers tonight, um, many of whom are you know, interested in what they can do uh, to improve U.S.-China uh, economic relations. Each of you give one suggestion um, how the people on this call can do something to improve U.S.-China economic and trade relations. Whichever of you wants to take it first, go ahead. I'll be very broad in what I say, and that is just to remember um, that interconnectivity, and that's what trade is, is good for our two countries. And so demonizing trade is just so counterproductive when, when we benefit from that. And so I think we've heard much too much 
over the past uh, four years about enemies and about you know being more insular and that's better for the United States or better for China. And that's just simply not true. And so trying to think about trade as uh, connectivity and the positive, the positive benefits of that, I think uh, is, is incredibly important for all of us as we deal with a lot of challenges in US-China relations. This is one area where we really can and do see tangible benefits. We have to think about that in a more positive way. Andy, uh, I'll, I'll give the same advice that I've given when I've been at town halls in person, which is if you agree with a lot of what you've heard here today. Make your views known to your congresswoman or your senator, regardless of which party they represent, because there is a strong view in Washington, and those are people from your district or your state, that better relations with China is not in our economic or security interests. And if you disagree with that, it's important for your representatives in Washington to know that. Yi Ping, you have the last word. Well, I, I think if everybody agrees that the connectivity is beneficial for both sides, then we just should keep doing it. Absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree with all three of you more, but I want to thank all three of you for a wonderful, interesting panel, which if I had my way would have been scheduled for 10 hours, not one, um, because there was so much more I wanted to ask and hear such three such sort thoughtful um, panelists. Uh, I wanna thank our audience for joining the National Committee on our fourth night of Chinatown Hall. Uh, we hope you're enjoying these programs and you can register for our final program, which will be tomorrow night on health and climate. We've posted the registration link in the chat box for those interested, or you can go to our website, ncuscr.org CTH for Chinatown Hall and register. Um, I can't thank you enough for supporting the committee, for supporting US-China relations as much as you do. Yiping, have a great day. Amy and Andy, well, Andy, it's your afternoon, so you have a nice dinner, and Amy, you have a nice night. But thank you, all three of you, for being with us tonight. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.